Hey everybody, you're very welcome to this week's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Colman Nocturne, and it's a great pleasure to come and chat to you again. This week's episode is a listener's questions episode, but before we get into that, I really just want to say again how grateful I am to the young people who contributed to last week's episode. The Young Person's Voices episodes always do very well in terms of downloads and feedback, and last week's episode was no different. To Kiva and Nisha, Kathleen, Mira and Cole, I just wanted to extend a a great thanks. There was such poignant and painful messages about how the last 12 months has been for them. And I think it was really important for us to give those young people a platform. And the third group who I feel haven't really had a chance to be heard or spoken about and oftentimes are only spoken about in negative terms are the 18 to 25, the young adult or or youth, um, who will be represented in the episode next week in the final instalment of our Young People's Voices episode. So please don't miss that one. It'll be great. And if you haven't listened back to the uh, Young Persons episode, episode two, I would really encourage you to do that. Another milestone was reached this week. And over just before the weekend, the podcast hit 50,000 downloads. I mean, a phenomenal achievement as I tweeted about it I said not bad for two novices and myself and Adam are absolutely delighted and humbled by that response and just thank you to everybody who's listening who's sharing and downloading we hope that the podcast has been a useful companion to you through the last six months or so and um, it certainly has helped us to keep busy but it has been a a labor of love and it's just such an honor to uh, see how it has been received and the length and breadth of downloads and responses that it has got. And we just credit all our guests in season one and season two, all my listeners, questions, companions, um, and everybody who has contributed to achieving that. So thank you very much to everyone. And uh, yeah, sure, we look forward to providing the next 50,000 for you. But Today's episode is great. Uh, I speak to another parenting expert and get a different voice on how things can be managed. We got lots of questions in this week. And uh, yeah, I'll let you listen on. But thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. And I'll let you enjoy this week's episode. Anyway, on to my guest today. You're very welcome to the Listener's Questions episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast with the wonderful Mary O'Kane. And it's great pleasure for me to introduce you to Mary because this is the first time Mary and I have actually met, despite the fact that I follow Mary quite closely in all her work that she does. And for anybody who don't know, Dr. Mary O'Kane is a lecturer in psychology, early childhood studies and education with the Open University. Her research interests include childhood transitions, self-esteem and well-being. But where you probably know her best from is she has a monthly slot on the Ireland AM TV show talking about parenting, and she covers other coverage on the Alison Curtis show on Today FM, and there's a great slot on that. And more recently, Mary has written a book called Perfectly Imperfect Parenting, Connection, Not Perfection, which is just out in April 2021, and I can't recommend this book highly enough. Uh, I have flicked through it and read some of the parts of it, and I think from what I guess is that Mary and I come from a similar view that parental pressure, parental expectation doesn't yield any results in terms of making parents feel any better about themselves. And certainly maybe reducing the expectation on ourselves is probably the better way to go when it comes to that. So it's a real pleasure 
to have Mary on the show and I would just like to introduce her to you now. So Mary, how are you? Oh, thank you for that lovely introduction, Coleman. And it's lovely to be invited to take part in the podcast. I feel like I know you too. It's all these all these connections that we've made in the last year or two. We might have been locked into our houses, but over Twitter and Facebook and all the rest, it, it we have connected with so many people. I suppose that's been a, a plus to For lockdown. Sure. For yeah. sure. And Kamir, how has uh, 2020-21 been for you, Mary? I mean, obviously busy with the book and everything else, but on a whole, personally, how have you managed it all? Well, Coleman, it, it has been, you know, I think like everybody, up and down. We've, I, I, I have three kids, so there's myself, my husband, and my three are older. And at the beginning of COVID, my eldest had just gone into her first job after college and was really happy. But both she and my husband lost their jobs quite quickly because they were both in the hospitality industry. They both found new jobs eventually, which was brilliant because neither of them are sit-at-home people. Particularly my daughter is a real people person and mentally it wasn't good for her being at home. So they had major ups and downs. Then myself and the younger two have been at home more. My son is in BIM studying music in college. He's in third year. So he has been in his room, Coleman, Mm -hmm. for most of this year, desperately missing his friends. But he has a great friendship group and they've been online. Actually, they're really good at connecting online. Like you hear him laughing his head off sometimes in the bedroom and you think, I wonder what they're talking Mm. about now. But, oh, my gosh, he's desperate to get back to college in September face to face, you know. Mm. And then my youngest is in school. And funny, because we all know how the homeschooling went. Now, she's older, but she actually enjoyed the online learning and in a way, I was a bit nervous about her getting back out into the world. You know, she was quite happy cocooning mm-hmm. here. And she was one of those kids. So it's just been so different, I think, for each one of us. Mm. As we, and then as the mom, and I do think as mothers, we kind of take on more in terms of wanting to mind everybody in the family, whether they want to be minded or not. And so I suppose I'm worried about different members of the family at different points in time, if you know what I mean. It has been that. Somebody said, you know, we're all in the same boat, but uh, sometimes uh, some people's boats are better equipped than others. Um, And sometimes the water is a little rougher in the patches that you might be in. But like you were saying there, I mean, anyone in the hospitality sector were devastated through the last year. It was horrendous. And then you've that college experience and, you know, as a lecturer in a college yourself, you know what it's like to be in the, the, the online space and trying to, you know, enthusiastically motivate. It's challenging. It's not easy. And then you see it from your child's perspective as they're, you know, on the receiving end of all of that. But yeah, I think it has been, it's been a bit of a baton handing over relay of, you know, I'm doing okay. Pass on the attention to someone else who might be struggling at the moment. Yes. But it has been a juggling act. And I, I absolutely agree with you for, I would, I've said it many times, I think it's been the hardest year to be a psychotherapist. It's been the hardest year to be a lecturer. And mm. it's certainly been the hardest year to be a parent, you know, in terms yeah. of the challenging situations that have come up. Mary, yeah. how did you end up in this space? I mean, obviously you lecture in, the, in childhood uh, studies and things like that, but how did it, you end up writing the book and becoming kind of involved in, in this 
area? Well, well, Coleman, it kind of happened to me rather than really me choosing to move into parenting. So I've always lectured in psychology and I've always lectured in early ed, well, education and um, different sort of mostly birth to 18. Mm. So my PhD, oh my gosh, you know, your big year in big school. Oh, mm. Coleman, I love that show. Mm. Coleman, that was like my PhD. My PhD was all about that first year in school. So I sat in the classroom like no cameras, but I sat there following a group of kids making that transition. And that's what sort of led me into the parenting there. That's a bit back in the day. The mm. kids I was following are now all finishing college. And I was, so it was a <laughs> while ago but uh and that got me into doing pet talks for parents and i was doing an awful lot of work for county child care committees and things giving talks to parents on supporting children and making that that transition so giving talks on self-esteem and on independence and all those skills so i suppose i've been doing that now for oh gosh about 10 years and then i started doing it more formally i suppose i was working with anton savage on today fm and then the ireland am stuff uh, but you know what i really believe coleman and i think it's probably what led me to write the book i i really believe that an understanding of psychology an understanding of child development and understanding of our children's brains really helps us mm. to parent. I absolutely believe it. Um, and I, I love, just I love working with my students. I, I teach a lot of first years in college and I love the first years. I love breaking it down, the psychology, in a way to kind of engage them. And so I found doing that with the parents as well. It's just so rewarding. You know, you know gosh, you know when you're connecting with parents and you, parents come up to you afterwards and they say, oh, you know, I just feel I can breathe a little easier after that. Mm. And it's just so rewarding. So I don't work with children, but um, but that's sort of what got me into the parenting work. And the book, gosh, I suppose it came from all those years. That I, I, I suppose the book is all about their social and emotional development, which is really my area. Mm. Um, but then the whole perfection idea is something I've seen over the years the pressure that parents are feeling and it, it's it's awful and I think as society like my mum's generation and her mum's generation those parents didn't feel that same pressure that it's as if we have the this we raise the bar so high like this absolutely idealized standard of what a parent should be mm. and and it's so unfair and funny. I think it's influenced how we parent. It's made us more controlling. And, and I hate the whole helicopter parenting and lawnmower parenting. Now, mm. can I just say, I am both. I, I am a helicopter with a lawnmower in front of me. <laughs> I've had to make myself step back, you know, stand back mm. from the child. But I think that we are sort of more controlling. And a lot of what I'm trying to do in the book is talk about um, scaffolding them. You know, Donald Winnicott, I know you're he's somebody that you speak about as well, the whole idea of being good enough, but how we can make that good enough, good enough to really help our children to fly, you know, to let them be everything they're capable of. And I, I mean, I talk about scaffolding them, you know, that the whole mm. um, the Gotsky Bruner idea, scaffolding on the building, and that's who we should be. Let them let them become the independent, the strong, capable child they can be. And we're just dipping in and out for support. Do you know, Coleman, I think it's a lesson I've had to learn myself. Yeah, I mean, I think the, there's something about the culture or it's something that, that we're living in that is 
I believe it to be inherently unhealthy from the point of view of perfection. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. again, and I, I say it this way that, you know, I think our concept of enough is missing. Do you know what mm. I mean? We don't know because there's no enough really. Do you know what I mean? In terms of as soon as you get something, there's something else to achieve. And, and whether yeah. you're good at one thing, you need to be good at something else. And, and I do think there's a real pressure on us as parents. And, you know, people say it's, parenting or it's you know social media or it's technology or it's, mm. society. it's it's all of them you know it's all of these yeah. things together that create this we've lost a sense of enough and yeah. um if there's no enough then there's no content do you know what I mean um yes and maybe in the last year it, we've had to reevaluate a little bit about enough you know maybe it has focused us a little bit more on experiences rather than things and maybe we've realigned the value system a little bit on the basis of not being able to see grandparents and all that sort of stuff and realizing what it has meant to us. But I really hope that if there is a silver lining to come out of what it has been, that as we reboard, we don't maybe leave some of the learnings, you know, in terms of what has been difficult, but has probably, I don't want to say educational, but it's probably been formative in terms of us understanding what it is that we need versus what it is that we want. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Oh, Coleman, I completely agree. Mm. You know, I, I think for an, an, a lot of us as parents, and oh my gosh, I hold my hand up to this, before COVID, and I'm, I'm not trying to say, oh, wasn't COVID great? I mean, I really am not. Mm, but, no. but before that, oh my gosh, I think it was as if we had just created the perfect storm for our children. We overschedule them. We drive them everywhere. We have them doing every activity. We're so worried about the points race. They go into junior infants and we're already thinking, thinking, oh, what points might they need to become a doctor? You mm. were, we, we created that storm and I think it was really impacting on us and our children. And I really agree that I, I know myself, the past year or so has made me step back and think, you know what, when, when this summer, I'm so looking forward to this summer, Coleman, I think vaccinations are giving us the light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm really determined to try not to go back to chasing my tail the whole time. You know, I, th- I think we realised we all needed a bit of breathing space. Now, having said that, I think we're all ready to get back out in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know mm-hmm. I am. And um, I'm dying for life to open up again for everybody, for literally everybody in the society. From the, I think of my mom, and then she's 80 and her generation, the mums with new babies who've hardly seen anybody, the college kids, you know, even the early 20s who should be kissing the faces mm-hmm. off each other and they've missed out all the, the romances that have never mm-hmm. happened in the past year or so. I, every one of us just needs to live again. But I, I really think you're right. I think maybe, and particularly as parents, I hope we've thought, you know what, I'm just going to breathe more. Yeah, I, I think I have a, a prediction, Mary, that I think we'll have the kind of pennies and woodies phenomenon that we'll go a bit, you know, full tilt for a few days and then it'll <laughs> it'll settle down. Um, I know from the point of view of my kids, are just back at sport and as I speak to you now Mary there's perspiration on my brow because I've been at a rugby pitch this morning at half nine I was up at a soccer pitch at 12 and I'm just about 10 minutes back here I'm after wolfing a roll into me and now I'm sitting down talking to you so uh, all my you're not doing it Coleman you're doing the opposite of what I I am but I'm I'm thinking you know this will go for a few weeks, but then yeah. we have to the, the, we have to recalibrate, um, yeah. and and I think we will get 
a bit of a flurry. Uh, you know, uh, as I say, I, I, I'd be the first person who I, I would never have been a, a real socialite or a drinker, but my God, I'd love to even sit in Temple Bar and spend 10 euro on a pint and talk to some English guy about this cricket score or something, even at the moment, you know, so it's, uh, but I, I, again, I think we will, we'll calibrate, you know, yes. and, and we'll, we'll find our level, but hopefully we take some of the, the value systems of 2021 and lockdowns and everything else with us. I, oh, I, I hope so. Anyway, Mary, we better get on because we have a lot of questions after coming in to yeah. the podcast this week. I might read a couple of them out and then uh, we'll see where we go from that. So I'm going to start with the first one. Uh, and there was some very nice intros here about they had heard me speak at a webinar and they were they thought about asking the question. So the first one, Mary, is may I ask you if you have a strategy for helping my 16-year-old to overcome this obsession? It's gone from a simple touch wood to a ritual of touch wood, I won't get COVID, touch wood, my family won't get COVID, touch wood, I won't pass on COVID to anyone else. And there's a few more touch woods which are accompanied yeah. to a sequence knocking. They're not done in specific sequence. She gets stressed and has to start all over again if they're interrupted. And once she's done it, she's relaxed and fine. But I know it annoys her and she, when she needs to do it. It's hard to say how many times she does it. Not more than 10 times, I would think. But I couldn't be certain. I'd really love to hear your views on this. And perhaps is it okay for her to continue to do this? Uh, and is it perfectly fine? And this lady has asked, she's very kindly said, look, there's no urgency, but she would just like some, our thoughts on that. Mary, is this anything you've yeah. ever come across or any thoughts on this? Oh, yeah. Well, funny, Coleman, because rituals, the word rituals, and it kind of, rituals can kind of go either way. Funny, I've been saying to parents over COVID, you, you know, when children are feeling anxious, and I'm always talking about not a really, really strict routine, but you have know, a family routine, and the rituals are so comforting, and and we talk about them in that way. However, I mean, rituals help us in terms of security, and that's wonderful. But I'm hearing from so many parents very similar stories at the moment. And the rituals are becoming more these OCD type rituals. And you know, Colma, when you think about it, what have we been saying to children? Wash your hands, wash your hands, you need to be careful of germs, you need to do this. And we, we've, with the best will in the world, we've been reinforcing that this the whole time. So in a way, it's not surprising that some of our children have become obsessive about this. It's funny the parent is saying, I'm not sure how many times, you know, no more than 10 times I would think. But I think as parents, sometimes we miss the extent to which these rituals can develop, or we think they're just little quirks in the child or whatever. But a period of anxiety that we have been through, I think, and I mean, oh my gosh, I'm not qualified to diagnose any child with OCD. And it's difficult to know if this behavior would warrant an official diagnosis without somebody seeing this child, obviously. But I would say to the parents, I would definitely not want this child to continue. And if we think about this whole OCD thing, and I'm an experience of this myself within my own family. And it's this obsession. So this unwanted thought. And she says the child is thinking, you know, about um, COVID. You know, I won't get COVID. Touch wood, my family won't get COVID. So it, it seems that this bad thing is the fear of COVID. And that's the obsession. And then the compulsion is the touch wood, knocking, knocking. 
And funny, you know the way children can have little rituals? I always think if the child doesn't mind you changing them, well, then that's not a worrying ritual. But if it's distressing for the child, if this ritual is not done in a certain way, and and from what she says, this child has to have this specific sequence. And I, I would be concerned then that you know, that belief, if I don't carry out this ritual in a certain way, something bad is happening, it could happen, um, would really worry me. If I'm honest, Coleman, I, if that parent, I would say to them, I would like somebody like you seeing this child. That's my, my feeling on it. 100%, Mary, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's, there's a reason for rituals. And as you said, it gives us a kind of a structure and it gives us something, you know, and, and this is not to minimize it, but let's imagine you're, you're waiting at a bus stop. And I would query whether many of us haven't said, you know, if the, if the bus doesn't come in the next 11 cars, well, then I'm going to get a taxi. Do you know what I mean? And it's, so yeah. we, we kind of we ask the universe to make a decision yeah. for us almost in that sense. But the, that's, that's fine. And lots of children will have a need for order and children yeah. like sets and they like collections and they like yeah. having them all colored together and all that. It just allows them a sense of control over their own life. Right. Uh, and, and in many ways, OCD can become something that we overinvest a degree of control in something because it makes us feel that better in the short term. So yeah. last March, when we all headed out and bought bales of toilet roll, Mary, the, <laughs> you know, t- we felt better having this stack of toilet roll why uh, for a respiratory illness? I'm not entirely sure, but we uh, we d- it made us feel better for the short term. But then the anxiety returns. So when you've got kind of obsessive compulsive worries, we oftentimes think reassurance is the way to go. But reassurance is sometimes like pouring water into a leaky bucket. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It, it, it lasts for a little while and goes back. But there's definitely a spectrum of degree of difficulty around orderliness and uh, you know, and and it can. It can creep into the pathological uh, when it when it starts to interfere with functioning. The, the thing I'd say to this parent is gauge it by the level, and this is exactly what you said, Mary. The level of conviction that she has in her need to do it is indication of how strong the belief is, which is an indication of whether something needs to be done or not. So I'd be less measuring the amount of time she does it, but the conviction when it is interrupted or disrupted that the level of distress that that causes her may indeed be indicative of whether she might need help or not. But I would echo your, your sentiment, Mary, that, that absolutely this is something that I would, I would get looked into earlier rather than later. And, and we're going to see a couple more questions in here, Mary, of a similar ilk. And it's yes. like the obsessionality is exactly like you said, you know, we, we've told children, wash the hands and everything else. But what I was interested in this, Mary, I thought I, when I heard this last March happening, I thought we're going to see a, a an influx of kind of obsessive compulsive behavior. And we didn't, yeah. but it's more recently, it's in the last number of months that it seems to have become not commonplace, but certainly more evident yeah. than it would have been done before. And I wonder, you know, but the cumulative effect of anxiety, you know what I mean? Yeah. That the longer it goes on, the more it can impact on us. And lots of people saying, I found the third lockdown the hardest. Yes. Um, it's almost, isn't it like that kind of build up of, you know, it's not, it's how long you have to hold the glass of water out for rather than whether it's half empty or half full. Do you know that kind of way? It's yeah. um, yes. a sense of that. But, um, but yes, I think I would echo Mary's advice on this. I would definitely get this looked into, but that, that cumulative impact, I think people are looking for a trigger and saying, why do I feel so bad at the moment? Nothing has really happened. 
but it's the enduring nature of the way in which we've had to live for 12 months that almost isn't it a fatigue element would you agree Mary? Yeah I absolutely agree and and it, see it's funny I know I a lot of parents would get in touch with me as well and their their children as you say it's only in the last while I also wonder if maybe we have been noticing it more you know it perhaps in the beginning we were so anxious about lots of everything happening and COVID and that I think sometimes these things go under the radar for us as parents and maybe now that we're 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 seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, we're we're starting to come back to a little bit more normality. We're also suddenly seeing more ourselves. But as you say, it is it's that cumulative effect. And what worries me with something like OCD that it, the more she continues it, the more dependent she will become. That that's why I. I I would definitely say I'd love her to see somebody like yourself who could help her now. For sure. Thanks for that, Mary. The second question is a similar about childhood anxieties. She said that this couldn't have come at a better time. Uh, her 15-year-old daughter has been suffering with daily panic attacks since she returned to school after Easter. It seems mainly to stem from her having to wear a mask all day, but it is now getting to the point where she's missing large proportions of classes because of her panic attacks. The school have been fantastic and are letting her leave the class and go for fresh air, but it's not getting any better. She started back at soccer training last week and had another panic attack there. I'll definitely say, uh, you know, the, the advice around, I know what this is, it will pass. But is there any other tips on how I can support her? I also should mention that her granddad passed away after a four-year battle with cancer in February and she was very close to him. So it's been very tough on her too. Yeah. So. This is this young 15 year old girl is really struggling with the experiences of panic. Mary, is this something that yeah. you see? Well, funny again, I thought, oh, the past, you know, this whole year has been hard on everybody. It's been anxiety inducing for everybody. I would be shocked if there's anybody out there who says, no, I haven't felt anxious at all. We all have at some point. But this pet has been through so much and losing the granddad and the four-year battle. You know, it just seems to me that this has been going on for a long time for her. You know, the nightmare has been so much worse for her because of, of her grandfather as well. One of the things I always say to parents is ask yourself, is this significantly affecting your child's life? And if you go, yes, this is, well, that's your, that's your message. You need to do something. I'm, I'm a real believer in taking children to see somebody. If, if the answer that, to that question is yes. And to me, daily panic attacks since Easter, missing large portions of her class. Now it started when she's at the training. And panic attacks are awful. Yeah, I mean, this... This is awful for a 15-year-old to be living this. And I mean, I think with panic attacks, I mean, for me, it's, you know, this, our body's alarm is just gone crazy. So this alarm is going off when it needn't go off. She's living in a state of fight or flight response. I mean, that, that is horrific. And I think one of the worst things for me with panic attacks is that this person, and she is a child of 15, the belief that you are potentially going to die. And I think you're living with that as well in this state of panic is, is just terrific. So again, and I mean, it's kind of the same response. I, I would have this girl into the GP. I definitely would in terms of getting support. In the meantime, I suppose for me, and it's the one thing I always say to parents, no, well, first of all, I was going to say controlled breathing, but first of all, with panic attacks, knowing what's happening, so if, if 
this 15 year old and at 15 she's old enough to understand knowing that this is a panic attack rather than i am going to die potentially here is is a huge thing that understanding i know a really good friend of mine struggled horrifically with panic attacks when she was younger and i know that knowledge that understanding okay i am actually not going to die here this is not what's happening knowing being able to sort of rationalize and i know it's very hard to rationalize when you're in that moment but even knowing that um just gives you um something that you can hold on to to help you sort of breathe and ride it out. Controlled breathing, Coleman, I, for me, is just such a huge tool that our children can use that I would love her to teach while she's waiting to see somebody to teach this child controlled breathing, just those long, deep breaths to just help her to literally ride it out, to, to maybe try and do that while this panic goes down. Now, having said that, there is no easy answer for me to panic attacks, but I would be doing the same here. I'd be taking her to you. I, I would want this child to go and see somebody because I don't think panic attacks is something that a 15-year-old is going to be able to deal with herself. She needs help. Sure. She needs support. Yeah, and I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Mary, in lots of ways. I mean, I think the panic attack is terrifying. And so when you experience it, it, it completely throws you and all those fears and anxieties around I'm going to die and all those things add to the, the kind of physical feeling and release more and more of that adrenaline into yeah. the system. What I would say is that, um, and in my experience, panic attack is quite treatable, you know, and it, it's exactly like you say, once you know, I know what this is, this will pass and almost yeah. being able to to control your breathing, control the release of the anxiety and not adding the fuel to, of the thoughts to the fire can actually make it very manageable, but it's something you have to practice. But you, 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 you made me think about something there that I haven't thought about before when you said it was the body's alarm, right? Yeah. Now, years ago when I was uh, a struggling uh, student nurse, I had a car that was very old and rickety, but it had an alarm on it, right? And uh, the alarm used to go off for no reason whatsoever. It was some sort of a, I think if a bird landed on the boot, it would go off, right? But I can remember the first time the alarm went off, running out thinking someone had stolen my car. And then it went off again the following night. And then, of course, it was always at nighttime it used to happen. But when I knew it was something faulty, I wasn't running out in the panic of seeing somebody stealing my car. I was going out to reset it. Do you know what I mean? So yes. Because I knew it was a fault, so there's something going on. So from the first time I ran out thinking I'm going to find somebody stealing my car and driving it off down the cul-de-sac, the reality was this was something. So my knowledge that there was a fault there yes. automatically meant that I could deal with it differently. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I've, I haven't thought about that car uh, for years until you just mentioned it about the alarm. And that's, it's almost like, ah, I know that's the thing is just firing, misfiring here. I'll just go out and reset it. And yeah. It's almost like trying to apply the same principles to the faulty misfire because yeah. so anxiety is, is necessary. And, and again, I say this all the time, like we sweat because when we were in the jungle, you know, it made us harder to be grabbed by a bear and our pupils dilate to allow us to see if there's any more bears around and our heart pumps our blood to our feet so that we can run faster away from the bear. So there's primitive reasons why anxiety is happening. It just shouldn't happen uh, in the middle of home economics on a Tuesday afternoon. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the misfire that creates yeah. the kind of something's wrong. But 
yeah, I'm just thinking of my old Renault 9 with the dodgy, the dodgy alarm and thinking, yeah, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to use in the future. So thanks, ah. thanks for reminding me of that. <laughs> the next uh, question we have, Mary, is um, my child is very anxious and keeps asking me, what did she say every 10 seconds? If she thinks something, somebody's listening to her, uh, what do you, what should I do? Uh, I don't have a sense of the age of this child, Mary, but I'm guessing probably young. Um, yeah asking me, what did she say every 10 seconds? Um, any thoughts on what this might be? Oh, well, I mean, we know very little about this other than the first thing that I just thought is this little pet, and I'm the same, I thought little too, but I thought this little pet just wants reassurance. It's reassurance. It's re you know, when they when they ask you anything, and I mean, the, the thinking somebody is listening to her, I thought it, to me that it's the asking for the reassurance. It doesn't really matter what she's asking about, I would have thought. It's that need for reassurance. And again, I thought, well, she says my child's anxious. You know, when we're, I think so many children who struggle with anxiety, it, it is, it's my mum or my dad. They're the most important person in my world. And if they tell me it's okay, it's okay. So I ask and I'm told and I ask and I'm told and I ask and I'm told. So that need to keep asking just grows and grows and grows. So the, the, the constantly wanting reassurance becomes this really unhelpful way of coping with the anxiety because it provides that temporary relief. But sure, the parent is driven, demented at that point, that, and it's exhausting trying to constantly, const particularly when you think, but nobody is listening to you. What is you're, you're, and then maybe the parent might get frustrated and, and that can be damaging as well. So I think, I think it's about not providing that constant message. And I don't mean provide her with nothing, but by constantly feeding the reassurance, we're feeding the need. So instead of giving the reassurance, I thought if she could say something like, oh, pet, now, that sounds to me like you're really worrying about this. Is there something we could do now to try and help you? Know, is there something we could do to make it feel better? And think about, so instead of constantly reassuring, you're acknowledging, you're empathizing with that feeling. But I also thought she needs to try and think of something the child can do. And again, I'm, like, I'm always talking about the breathing. Breathing is, is my go-to response to everything. It, I mean, I tell it to myself, Coleman. You know, you know, if you're too busy in work or something. I wake up sometimes at four in the morning. I think I'm never going to get it all done. And I say to myself, breathe, Mary, breathe. But I say it to everybody else as well. And, you know, any relaxation you know, technique that would work for her, even like visualizing something. But if she could help the child to put something else in place of the need for reassurance. So, so each time the child says it. But on the other hand, I also think, it's so easy to be inconsistent as well that if she thinks, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to not reassure. And as a parent, I think you feel cruel if you're not reassuring. So to say to yourself, no, it's much better if I can, that little bit of empathy. Oh, you know, and I nearly have a line in her head. Oh, it sounds to me like you're worrying or it sounds to me you're feeling anxious. And then, you know, is there something we can do? Or maybe we'll try breathing to make just a little rule in your own head. I'm not going to fall back in the, to the trap of the constant reassurance. What do you think, Coleman? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think one of the things we, we overlook is the importance of visibility for children. You know, there's that sense of they exist in an attention economy or a visible economy. And so 
they measure things very much by how seen or heard they are, you know, so, uh, and I get it here, you know, my six-year-old will say, you kissed my sister twice yeah. before she went to bed and you only kissed me once. And you're kind of going, I didn't even notice I did that, but thank you for pointing it out. So there's this kind of justice issue, yeah. but they will achieve visibility in whatever means is it is effective. And so reassurance is something that, you know, oftentimes a child will seek and we will give. But yeah. the, the issue around reassurance is goes back to that point of, of pouring the water into the leaking bucket because I don't know whether it's necessarily answering the issue. And as you say, you know, yeah. trying to look behind it and say what's really going on or yeah. you know, what, what's behind this this request because uh, somebody explained, I, I use a lot of metaphors when talking with young people and sometimes some of the things that we want to make us feel good are not the right things. And maybe something like rituals, something like reassurances like this. So Mary, I, I use this example of, you know, that if you go to someone and say, I have an awful rash on my finger. And I say to you, I've just the cream for that. So I give you the cream and you put it on and the rash is gone within five minutes. And you go, that's great. And you get on with your day. But the next day you wake up, Mary, your whole hand is covered in the rash. Yeah. You're back to me again saying, Coleman, this is bad. Give us another drop of that cream. So I give you another bit. <laughs> And you lash it on in five minutes, it's gone. But the next day you wake up, your whole arm is covered in it. And before you notice, you're back and you're depending on the cream all the time. And you're going to me, can't leave the house without the cream, can't go upstairs without the cream, I've got my cream. And then you come to me and say, Colin, I can't live like this anymore. I've become totally a, a prisoner to this cream. And I would say to you, well, the answer, Mary, is don't put on the cream for three weeks and the rash will go itself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, the idea is that the thing that we, and it's like a, almost like an addiction model, yeah. disorder model, it's like a ritual model. The stuff that we really have the itch and urge to do is the thing that we may need to not do. Do you know yes. what I mean? And, and, but there's no way around it. You well, know, we have to go hard. through the discomfort of living yeah. with the rash yep. for it to go away. So the urge to restrict your food, the urge to do your rituals, the urge yeah. to seek reassurance, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're telling the addict, I'm going, I'm, I'm saying no for your own good here. Do you yep. know what I mean? But very difficult in a parenting, caring, empathy position to not give reassurance when a child is, is begging for it almost. Yes. In that way. But you have to kind of think bigger picture here. This is, uh, it's just giving her more cream. And yep. maybe I need to be able to think about that a little bit differently. And it's so hard. I'm, I'm a wuss, Common. I'm an absolute wuss. I really am. And it's, it is. It's counterintuitive. It, it goes against everything you feel. And it. I think as a parent, it is. And actually, an example like that helps because you, you think, OK, no, you have this thing to hold on to and remind yourself of. But it, it just it feels cruel not to reassure. But as you say, it, it, it's only going to get worse. You have to try and look at it that way as hard as it is. As I say, the parenting is simple. It's, it's just not easy, you know, in terms of how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> the next one, Mary, is uh, hoping you can advise me on something. My eldest child is 11 and seems to have a major issue with small spaces, being left alone with them, such as a car, toilet, or a shop. Uh, this is pre-COVID. If I'm popping into a small shop to get one item, I'm parked directly outside. She can't be left on her own in the car. She'll panic. She literally starts trembling when I return. She's a total fear of elevators, refuses to travel in them, has gone. This has gone on for a few years now. We thought it would just pass, but unfortunately it hasn't. During lockdown, we started being fearful of being upstairs on her own. Um, the rest of the family are downstairs. If I go upstairs, if she wants to shower, you have to be there with her. Uh, it seems to be worse in the evening time when she's tired. She often won't go to sleep. Uh, even though she knows me and her dad are upstairs for the night, she also is very anxious at bedtime. 
Uh, even though when she was small, she was the same. We'd have to lie beside her till she fell asleep. But it, this has improved loads over the years. Before lockdown only happened every now and then. Uh, I've asked her if she's just uncomfortable being alone or if she's scared. She said she can't explain. I don't believe it's worrying about COVID as she's never mentioned it outside of saying it's boring for her and she doesn't tend to tell me when she's worried about something. I worry all this fear is going to become an obstacle in her enjoying life. She's in fifth class and will start secondary school in, uh, in September next year. I hate to see this holding her back. Otherwise, she's a very happy kid and many friends and hobbies enjoy school and is recently starting to meet her friends for an hour or two on a walk. Um, she's loving the new freedom and, in, and shows no fear of being away from us in that context. How can we help her? Is the elevator and car thing a sign of claustrophobia? And are there techniques that we can try? We don't push her too much, but we try never every now and again to see if she's more able. Uh, she said the, she's the eldest of three. Her brothers are eight and baby sister is just seven months. And she's a good relationship with both of them. So this little one is, is highly anxious about lots of different situations. Some of yeah. them those spaces being on her own. Any thoughts on this one, Mary? Well, funny, I thought the same as the parent in terms of the claustrophobia. And so many little ones do have an anxiety about being in confined places, and most of them grow out of it. But to me, this is debilitating. You know, it absolutely is. And for me, I would think, oh, hold on, that's claustrophobia. And I, I know with some children it can happen where they something does happen, like there was an event. You know, maybe they were alone in the car when you ran into the shop and something happened that gave them that fright. But then for so many children, there just seem doesn't seem to be a specific event. It's just this underlying anxiety. And I love that the mum says it's not affecting her life generally. Like she's going out meeting friends. She's just, so it, it's she, she's living her life perfectly fine on, on one level. But for me, this is definitely becoming a real issue for her. And even funny, because again, the parent says, no, I don't think it's it's COVID related. But even lockdown was quite confining. And, and as I said, we've all struggled with anxiety. And for a child who is already struggling with anxiety, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all that it has exacerbated it funny she was saying it's gone on for a few years now we thought it would pass I, I think again it goes back to what I was saying earlier about if this is significantly affecting your child's life and for me this is not going to pass you know it, it's going to need some help at this point do you know what I thought was really positive when she said she'd improved loads over the years before lockdown, it was only happening now and again. So again, I did think, well, hold on, that is really good because you and your daughter know that this has been a real issue before, but it improved. So that was my first thing. I'd love to know what had caused it to improve at that point, because I don't think it probably improved for no reason. So I'd love this parent to look back and think, hold on a minute. You know, first of all, isn't it great? that this was a severe problem, but it got better. So both you and she need to remind yourself of that. You've done this before, you can do it again. And that's really important in terms of her, her self-belief. I'd love to know what was happening or what you were doing at the time, because usually these things don't just magically disappear. If it's been an ongoing issue for years, usually there's something that happened that caused that to improve. So I'd love to know what she was doing, but I'm laughing at myself here, Coleman. I'm going to think the same thing. I would want to take her maybe to a psychotherapist. I'd like to, I mean, if this child had maybe some CBT, if they had, um, you know, some 
visualization techniques if, if she were taught something to help her because she's living this great little life outside this issue i would like even something like you know exposure therapy i'd, I'd like her to see somebody who could help her deal with this see colleen you sense the theme here and what i'm saying but i do i i really say to parents you know if this is really a significant problem, let's take your child somewhere, bring them to somebody who can give them the tools to enable them to move beyond this limit, this thing that's limiting their life. Absolutely, and I think there's, there's a theme in the answers and a theme in the questions, Mary, because there's so much about, uh, this lady makes a very good point about how it was going well and then over COVID. And she said, it, I don't think it's about COVID. And again, we can kind of, we can over-focus on the, the, the COVID-19 virus being the difficulty this year. For children, it's been the lockdown, not yes. it's the consequence of it, not the, the event. You know what I mean? In terms of the vulnerable population for COVID is people with underlying conditions and elderly people. The vulnerable population for lockdowns are children. Do you know what I mean? Yes. From the point of view. So, so even though this child doesn't express an anxiety about catching COVID, they, they, so much, and this is something I've seen, Mary, in my clinical work, young people and children who've been doing brilliantly well over up to the last few years, a lot have have slipped back Regress. over the last year yes. because much of what we do for mental fitness, which is our friendships, our relationships, feeling productive, having meaning in our life, our hobbies, our purposes, a lot of that hasn't allowed. You know, so we talk about physically, people are talking about, oh, I've put on the COVID stone and all that sort of stuff. Mental fitness has also struggled because we haven't had the things that keep us healthy or yep. we've not been able to access them. So children, lots of children have gone backwards not because of fear of COVID-19 or coronavirus, but that the access to their, their lifestyle choices and their well-being and fitness avenues have been cut off in them. Do you know what I mean? So, so there's, there's, there is that piece. I think you're right. I think this girl does need something else. Again, the, uh, the claustrophobia might be one thing, but there's, there's lots of children who traditionally maybe haven't heard it many in, in many recent years, but years ago, people used to say, she's a street angel house devil. Right, so oh, the yeah. idea is, uh, that a child might function very well in one setting, but not in the other. And there is something about perhaps at home where she is this highly anxious child, but then she manages quite well in the in the outside space. Sometimes the fear is is about permanency. You know, it's about will if you go upstairs, are you gone? You know, and and when we go back to children and and we think about peekaboo, you know, here gone, yeah. here yeah. gone. The whole practice of returning from absence, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, Freud used to call it the fourth da, you know, here gone. And so the idea is that children struggle with permanency and the anxiety that if you go or if I can't see you, are you gone forever and, and then you're back. And so, um, you know, I think the last year has thrown a lot of our notions of permanency. You know, we were supposed to be off school for two weeks. We ended up being off for six months. We were supposed yeah. to be coming out of something last September and we were in the worst numbers in, in, of, in history in January. We went on our Christmas holidays and we didn't get back for, you know. So the, the, the trust in our wider systems has been understandably rattled, I think, yeah. in lots of ways. And so the reason when we don't feel that we can trust our environment is we get anxious about it and we want to either, you know, we get anxious of the tightness of it or we get anxious around the size of it or the bigness of it. And this girl is really... She's struggling. And um, although she's, it's great that she's able to function. And I, at your point about, you know, what was working, yeah. pay attention to that is brilliant. Because sometimes we, 
we don't look back over something forensically and go, well, that why did that? Why was that okay? What was different about that? Because uh, the answer may be in that. But again, Mary, I'd, I'd have to echo your voice and, and say that this perhaps needs something else. Uh, I do think it's impeding functioning enough to warrant somebody to, to have a look at her and, and maybe help her with some CBT or to manage yeah. that anxiety for sure. Yeah. Next Coleman, one, Mary, I think you've hit sorry. the nail on the head. I must just say, I absolutely think you've hit the nail on the head with that. Do you know something else I think parents don't realise is that when they think, oh my gosh, is this person saying, I, I should refer my child, like, this is awful, but actually a little bit of support. It's it's not this awful referral that I there's something really wrong with my child and I have to take them off, but a, a very small block of support can be life-changing. I think Absolutely. it's important they know that, yeah. And and yeah, and I think there is, stigma still exists around getting support for something. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I, I would see therapy as, you know, you know, it's as much ruling something out as ruling something in. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And, and parents who come to me, and they might come with this massive worry about something that they have with their child. They'll see me once, Mary, and I'll say, no, this is up. This is utterly normal. This is absolutely yeah. fine. And and just the notion that there isn't something more sinister going on or that there isn't something to terribly worry about can be a huge lift off their shoulders. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it might have been that appointment that they've put off asking for for quite some time. So even for reassurance and, and to, to get news when you go and see a therapist and say, you don't need to come here, it is good. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that in itself is reassuring. The next one is interesting, Mary. There's two questions here that are kind of similar. Yeah. Uh, the first one is, I have a leaving cert daughter who's due to turn 18 in June. Many of her friends are turning 18 next month and next, this month and next, and they're talking about parties. She's invited to a house party, which... Well, they claim they will be in the back garden this coming Friday. I've explained to her the rules around household gatherings and regulations set by the government. She just gets extremely angry and says it's no matter what, says she's going no matter what I say. I understand how difficult the current situation has been for this age group. They've already missed out on so much in the last year. They won't be having a Debs or graduation ceremony. But I don't know how to get the message through to her about how serious this is when it seems she's the only one of her group of friends not allowed to go. I would be grateful for your advice. Oh, I love this one. Um, funny comment about the last line. She's the only one of a group of her friends not allowed to go. And I thought, yep, it's always the case. Funny that, isn't it? But anyway, but I have to say, I love teenagers. You know, my heart goes out to this group. They are criticised so often. And they have been wonderful. The vast majority of them have been brilliant. They've given up so much. And not only have they given it up, but they didn't give it up for themselves. You know, they are a really not at risk group, but they did all this to protect their granny and their granddad. They did it to protect the vulnerable. And so I, I really wanted to start by saying that because I just think our teenagers have been brilliant. It goes against everything they should be doing developmentally to be sitting at home and they've been the vast majority have been great but and remember i said earlier with the book one of one of my aims in the book was to bring a bit of psychology and a bit of brain development into how we parent and when i saw this it made me giggle because it, the teenage brain is just this brilliant thing it's just slightly haywire and i think from this parent's perspective for any parent of teens it's important to remind ourselves first of all what are they supposed to be doing they're supposed to be learning to be this independent autonomous adult they're also supposed to be finding their own identity like it's, it's a really important phase of development having a teenager to me is like you can tell i have a few is like having a toddler in a great big body because their brain development is so similar they are it's such a time of growth 
their their emotional brain is absolutely hey presto raring to go the prefrontal cortex the front of the brain the thinking part of their brain remember years ago when we used to think that by the time our children were teenagers their brain development has finished and we, now we know mid-20s and they that that thinking part of the brain that you know the part of the brain that deals with their judgment their impulse control organizational skills planning skills all that is is not functioning too well so they're kind of at the mercy of their brain development so i do think it's yes she's doesn't understand and yes she's angry and she yes she whatever because that's what her brain is telling her to do because she's a teenager so she's sort of doing exactly what she should be and i think for us as parents First of all, knowing that I think helps. If we if we think, you know, my my teenager is really not trying to be difficult. They are not trying to drive me mad. They're not refusing to listen to me. They're really, really not. They're they're just doing as well as they can do with the brain that they have. And so I think we need to think about how we respond to them. And I mean, to, trying to control her, trying to order her, trying to demand that she listen to the regulations is not going to work. And in fact, it's more likely to get her to kick against us. And um, that I think the more we try and force her hand, the more they re respond to that control. So I think instead of that, it's about respect. It's about showing them we respect their views. Now, now, I'm not saying we don't need them to respect ours. Of course we do. But I think we have to come at it from a perspective of, I really recognize your your need for autonomy i really recognize your need to be with your friends do you know what i think coleman with teenagers part of it is we want them to learn how to negotiate we want them to learn cognitive flexibility and the only way we can do that is by breathing ourselves and by negotiating with them and by really listening to their side of the argument and if we're going to negotiate, we have to listen. So I, I would say to this parent, to come back and think, okay, really sit and communicate. My, I mean, my whole thing is connection. That's Connection is the most important thing we have with our children. So it's connecting with her, really listening to her approach and, and giving a little bit. Now, funny, the restrictions are lifting. And I know that's no good for this party, but even to focus on, okay, if there's going to be 50 18 year olds whether they're in the back garden or in the house that i'm not saying to the parents don't don't listen to your own gut instinct i'm really not saying that but but compromise so you don't want her to go to this big 18th party she really wants to go to it so let how are we going to meet in the middle if this isn't possible what can you give for her you know the restrictions are lifting soon isn't it 15 people from next week so it's about that we're I, I'm really going to listen to your needs and let's see what we can work on together. I don't know what you think, Coleman. Yeah, Mary, I, I have to, I, 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 I'm coming off the back of, we recorded the Young Person's Voices episode last week and we talked to oh, all yeah. the young people about, their, and they were all the teenagers, they were all this age group of secondary school. And I just, my heart broke for them, Mary. I have to, I have to say, gosh, they've been messed out on so much. So my, on, on hearing that, I'm kind of saying, Mum, let's do a cost-benefit analysis here, but let's take into account the mental cost versus the physical yes. risk. And I'm not in any way being flagrant around uh, and countering health guidelines or anything, 
But uh, I have to say, Mary, my view on this would be I would let her go to the party. Do you know what I mean? It might be a boost for her. Um, I know that's probably the wrong advice to give, but in my, I, if I can speak honestly from my kind of listening to this and, and where my head is at at the yeah. moment when it comes to young people is, look, they're in school all day together, yes. you know, yeah. they're out in the back garden. Um, is compromise is key and we have to as you say we want our teenagers to be compromising and be able to ability sometimes as the adult we need to show our flexibility or trust in them as well Do you know yeah. um yeah i'd be tempted for that mary but i i'm very conscious that i spent about nine hours editing through footage for oh, of young yeah. people over the last year and if if anyone hasn't listened to the last episode i would strongly advise you to listen to what it has been like through the eyes of a teenager because it has been really, really challenging. But yeah. no, I absolutely, I, and your I point about connection, Mary, is spot on. Exactly. I, you know, I think the the less you listen, the more they shout. Um, yeah. I think from that point of view, it's really important. We better get on, Mary, because we've two more questions to get through. Okay. So this one is, my son will be 14 in September. He's had a difficult transition into first year in terms of settling in, making new friends, wide circle of friends in primary, but it's a bit of a culture shock in secondary school. He isn't in a feeder school, so he'd no friends or acquaintances starting there. This didn't seem to phase him. He's very sociable. COVID, however, he certainly didn't help this a particular cohort of children. It's very difficult to form relationships with masks while encouraging lads to keep their distance, but they must. Um, he enjoyed homeschooling from January. It's just easier to study and engage from home. On the other hand, as a parent, I was quite concerned and keen for children to resume as I felt it was important for them to re-engage with classmates. Um, I'm not a parent that usually jumps the gun and contacts schools. However, once we were sure the schools were resuming, I contacted my son's school to outline my concerns. My focus wasn't on the academic side, but on the social and friendship side. You need to be happy and content before you can learn. Getting to my point, he settled back into uh, the school, which is a great relief. He's actually done it 180 degrees and wishes to hang out with the lads at the weekend for a few hours. Again, the COVID restrictions, first-year parents haven't had the opportunity to mix, and the norm would be the weekend rugby games based in school uh, but what we've the whatsapp group we had come and address the queries and the parents in the class are really nice while we're thrilled to see him forming relationships i'm extremely reluctant to just drop him off as a school it's a few kilometers from our community uh just to hang out with the lads he's 13 and for uh, so for this is a deal breaker we've reached a bit of a standoff it's important the children feel listened to and while i understand this point of view he needs to understand we will give him freedom and a sense of ownership with it when he's age appropriate he's very articulate and always encouraged him to be a critical thinker he uses these skills now to assert himself and challenge us and gain freedom uh, it's causing friction but i can't understand but can't make him understand despite my efforts i'm happy to drop him off to a friend's house where an adult has responsibility and keep an eye for there if needed he's not happy with that scenario He's certainly struggling with my preference for structured arrangements. That's not what the lads do. I'm out of touch. Maybe I am. However, such, sorry for such a long one. The question is, how do we reach a compromise that's safe and most importantly, communicate with him in a meaningful way so he can understand our position as parents? With age comes responsibility. As he grows, he will be given more. But at this age, it needs to happen gradually and in a structured way for the moment. Oh, Coleman, I loved this kid. I read this and I thought, you are wonderful. I, you are fantastic. 
how he went into a new school without his friends and he didn't seem to face him. He's very sociable. Then he, it, with the masks and everything, he coped with the online learning. I mean, the real sociable kid can cope online as well. Then he settled back in face to face, did his 180 and thought, this is great. I want to go out. Then I did laugh now when she said he's very articulate, a critical thinker, knows his own mind and is using it against us. I thought, oh, you are fabulous. Coleman, funny, your response to the 18-year-old. You see, I would have negotiated with the 18-year-old, but with this one, I'm thinking, now, hold on a minute. I would let him go. And the funny thing is, I when the, I think it was a mother, was, yeah, female name, when she said, how do we reach a compromise? So, okay, he wants to go and meet a few friends after school, and she wants him to go to a friend's house. How are we going to compromise? But she wants them to compromise to go to the house. That's not a compromise. That's doing what I want you to do. This kid is fabulous. I would trust him. I, in fact, this mother is fabulous. As I read it too, I thought, God, you're doing something right. Haven't you got this wonderful kidney of this real good relationship with him? I think I would sit with him and talk to him about responsibility because everything she says about him makes me believe this child it, it will take on board the responsibility. And I, I would trust him. I just thought he was wonderful. And it's, again, that connection, communication, keeping the lines, communication over. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make draw a line in the sand on this one to say you will not do this because I think your relationship is too important and he just sounds like such a fantastic kid. You know, so really think about what compromise means to you and, and I would sit and talk to him. What do you think? Yeah, I'm coming out at the same side, Mary. I mean, I, I do think, um, uh, here's the way I would look at this. Right? If your child wants to stay out in, at summertime till 10 o'clock at night and you want them in at eight, right? My view on that is say to them, okay, come in at eight o'clock, three nights in a row, on time, no arguments, no rows, and I'll push it to quarter past eight. Then you come in at a quarter past eight, on time, no arguments, no rows, we push it to half eight. And so what you're doing is you're encouraging them to play ball, but you have to give a child a responsibility yeah. to allow them to prove that, to earn the right. Do you know what I mean? You can't yeah. just remove the right without giving them some sort of a, an expression of, now, if he was to hang around with the lads, would it be possible? And would you be able to hold on to your anxiety for 20 minutes while he was able to do it, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, be around the area, not too far away, not hiding in a ditch with binoculars, but allow him the half an hour with the pals and then arrange to meet him somewhere. Yeah. All going well, do it again the next time. Give him to 45 minutes, you know, pick him up, see how he's going. And so if you pick him up at, you know, an hour later, he's not where he's supposed to be. He's, you know. Yeah necking and nagging a vodka in the back of a ditch then <laughs> you can pull it back but he hasn't done anything wrong yeah i mean he and i understand the issue of like he's 13 he's in secondary school he's in first year um there should be a little bit of autonomous decision making around this there should be um a little bit uh, like the, the reality is mary our virtual communities have never been bigger and our physical communities have never been smaller do you know what I mean? In terms of where children have space to explore. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of it is down to our own anxiety about that. Do you know what I mean? Um, yes. And, and 
you know, I oftentimes say when I was in school in the 80s, I would have uh, thumbed the lift home from school. And if I saw my 12-year-old do that, I would, you know, he, there would be hell to pay. <laughs> but uh, the world is a different place. But maybe we need to empower children yeah. to be able to show that level of autonomy. And to all intents and purposes, this lad has done everything is asked of him and has done it very well. Uh, yeah. And I, I would be as nervous as you might be for the 20 minutes or half an hour that he's not with you and he's there with the lads and you're worrying what he's doing. If you think he's not recklessly impulsive and unsafe, then I'd give him a shot and ask him to earn his stripes. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I say, give him the responsibility to earn the right uh, yeah. because there's nothing to motivate him as I say, if you're not going to move on your position. Yeah, you know definitely. I, mean? I completely um, it, agree, Coleman. Yeah. And I think that's the word. It's responsibility. Mm. You know, he just sounds like such a responsible kid. And if you sit and have that conversation and agree the boundaries, if you like, you know, mm. I, I completely agree on that one. And catch him being good. You know, yeah. in that sense, he's doing, he's managing it. And, and if he plays ball, he gets more, you know, and, and lots of children, I would say, uh, teenagers, there's a wonderful gift that some of them have, which is called savvy. Do you know what I mean? Mm, so, yeah. so they go to the mom and say, I'm going out to Jerry's. I'll be three hours. I'll ring you when I get there. I'll text you when I'm here. I'll text you when I'm leaving and I'll get home. And mom goes, that's fine. And then there's adolescent B and mom says, where are you going? And they go, none of your business, right? And they walk out. That's the mom and dad who will be following them in a car with the binoculars, you know what I mean, to do all this. <laughs> and it's almost, the more you tell your parents and the more you inform them of what's going on, maybe the less hassle they'll give you. And sometimes being, omitting some of the facts or trying to be coy about it or trying to be dishonest about it can, can work out not in your favor. And I think this young lad is being very upfront about what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. And, and maybe we should give him some kudos for that and, and maybe yeah. risk it for it. Uh, my last question, Marion, we get to the end now. This is some great answers here and some really, really important questions. But this one relates to uh, a child who's recently started having major tantrums at bedtime, uh, following the usual routine, teeth, toilet, book. In the room, we do the first book of his baby sister, 18 months old. She goes to her cot. He'll go to his room to read another few books, etc. Once books are finished, I took him in, have a cuddle. Uh, he starts his meltdown. Uh, I don't like this bed. I won't stay in it. I often have to say to him, with him until he goes to sleep. I approach the situation with your advice, asking why he doesn't want to go to bed. He doesn't answer me. Uh, he will sometimes say he's scared. I'll ask him what he's scared of. And he said on his own. I think the main issue here is my husband can't deal with the meltdowns and shouts at him telling him that Jack Frost is listening outside if he doesn't be quiet. Uh, he will be, he will come into him. I've asked my husband numerous times to stop saying this. Hence, when the toddler wakes up in the middle of the night, he will not settle for daddy. I always have to go into him. And I'm seven months pregnant again and stressed and exhausted with this situation. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Keep up the great work and love the podcast on children's voices. You're doing amazing jobs. Thank you very much for that. So, Mary, how do we help this mom here? Seven months pregnant oh. as a toddler and another chap. And this lad isn't settling at night time. Come on, I want to give her a virtual hug. That is the first thing. I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, this would be exhausting for anybody. But she's seven months pregnant with two young children. It must be just so hard. And I, I really, oh, I just felt for her so much. I agree with her. You know, 
asking, I've asked the husband not to threaten the child with Jack Frost. You know, that's really, really not going to help. We have an anxious child here. And the last thing an anxious child needs is the threat. Because the threat, that's going to increase the anxiety. This child, if, if within this child's brain, if their amygdala is telling them there's potential danger, and I tell them, oh, you think there's danger? Well, wait till I tell you, Jack Frost's out there and he's going to get you too. You're sending them into this complete fight or flight mode. So I, that's the most important thing. The next thing is, it, it sounds like separation anxiety and funny new baby on the way. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you Every time a parent says new baby and a change in behavior, it's like, you know, the way you, you always think, what is this child's behavior telling me? What's underneath? What's going on? So I, I also wonder if at the timing of it, but... Again, I'm thinking, okay, if, if it is this nighttime thing that's happening and it's about building back up his security, his sense of trust in the world in nighttime, we don't know whether the baby, the thought about the baby started this. He could be worried about not having her attention when the baby comes along. Something could have happened in the evening that gave him a fright in the room. You know, maybe somebody told him Jack Frost was outside the window and that might have set the whole thing off. But I think it's about security. If it is a sort of a separation anxiety from her, funny, I a quick plug for the book here, Goldman, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but I do go through in the book how you can go through this with children, this whole process of sitting with them when they need you and slowly, slowly as you build their trust, removing yourself from that bedroom. So you might be sitting on the bed in the beginning, you might be moving to a chair in the middle of the room. You're sort of not really engaging with the child, but you're a secure presence in the room while they gain their confidence back, and particularly with with the Jack Frost issue. I think this child really, really does need to gain his confidence back. Lots, I just thought lots of love, lots of attention because For me, this is security, but he needs to feel more secure in that attachment, in that relationship. So even in the evening, in the bedtime, what I recommend in the evening, if you're trying to move yourself away from a child, is that say you're sitting in the room and you're slowly baby steps, baby steps, removing your child. You promise them, I will not sneak away. I will not, you know, if you close your eyes, I'm not going to sneak off and leave you. I'm going to stay here until you go asleep. And, And you're reassuring them, but... I'm not going to sit here talking to you. So you're like this calm presence in the room and you're slowly, slowly moving away as the child gains confidence. And as I said, I I do go into detail in the book, but I think this child needs its security. I think that's what he needs. Also, seven months pregnant, you know, she has two months before this is going to, you know, I would really encourage her to do something now because she is going to need this to be maybe not completely sorted, but she's going to need to spend real time on this now while she has it. And not only her, the two parents in in this relationship, I would say it's really important, even if she is trying to develop that security and, you know, till the child feels more secure, I think dad needs to be very involved in this, that, that just... And see, even before he goes to bed, remember I was saying at the beginning, you know, when the world feels like a scary place for a child, your routine, predictability. 
ability. You know, you know, I know what happens every night I'm going to bed. I know I have my bath. I have my warm glass of milk. You know, daddy is reading me the story. Then, and, and I really would say for this child, I would have you. Know, I know daddy's going to sit in the room until I go to sleep and wean the child back to that sense of security. I don't know what you think, Coleman, if you agree or disagree. 100% Mary on you. And I just have one thing to add. I would say to dad in this situation, I am doing this job for 25 years and I have never really seen a child who's anxious successfully being scared into not being anxious anymore. Um, yeah. And I can exhaustively say that I've seen most approaches uh, and that is one that I have never seen work. So, uh, yeah. you know, again, I, I think that's probably... Uh, and and a, a tip to dad, but as you said, this lady is, is seven months pregnant. She's three small children. Uh, she's in lockdown, uh, and uh, it sounds very very difficult. So I would just really follow does. your advice. I would strongly advise this lady if she has two months to purchase Mario Kane perfectly, imperfectly, perfectly imperfect, perfectly imperfect book because I do think it has something really, really good to say. And Mary, if, if anyone hasn't been convinced by listening to you in the, over the last hour uh, and your insights into all of those challenges and difficulties, I think uh, I, I certainly would be encouraging anyone who's near a bookstore or when they're opening next week or if you're online. Uh, near, on my website, actually, Coleman, if they... Okay, w- what's the w- website, w- <laughs> www.drmariocane.ie probably the best place to get it because I will have it in the post the following day to them fantastic well look Mary I really want to thank you for your time here today Uh, I really want to thank you for your honesty your insights and your expertise it was a truly uh, that chat flew I can't believe we've been doing that we've been sitting here for for over an hour chatting and uh, it's a it's been brilliant to have you on. It has been absolutely lovely to meet you. I look forward to when we can sit at a conference or something with a, a bourbon cream and a cup of coffee and see <laughs> each other in person. Um, but I just want to say thank you very much to Mary O'Kane for joining us today. I want to say to everybody out there, if you, if you are looking for a really good practical parenting book that won't make you feel bad about pe- being a parent and won't feel, you be, feel that you're getting it all wrong, then Mary O'Kane's uh, Perfectly Imperfect is absolutely the one to get. Uh, and Mary, just give me that website again if people were interested it's in it. www.drmariocane.ie Perfect. And if anyone else has any questions for next week, we will be doing our final installment of our Young People's Episodes. This is a fantastic one. This is the 18 to 25 group. So this is the group that the college goers, the Debs missers and all that, uh, the, the challenges of dating, romantic interests, getting on with your life, going to college from your box room. There's some wonderful stories in that. I would strongly advise everyone to have a listen to that, whether you have a adult child or not. Um, and that will be out next week. If you have any questions in the meantime, you can get them into us on the usual asking for a parent at gmail.com or you can get us through the Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Uh, but for now, I want to say, Dr. Mary O'Kane, thank you ever so much for your time, your honesty, and your insights. And uh, to all you who are listening and continue to listen and download, uh, we look forward to continuing to keep you company through this pandemic as we start to come out the other side of it. But until the next time, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. That was the wonderful Dr. Mary O'Kane there. And Mary, 
as well as being an author of a book and a lecturer in early childhood studies and a mom of three, has a very sensible approach to things. I really enjoy reading her work and listening to her contributions. And, uh, you know, when I met her, it was absolutely... Um, I confirmed all those thoughts that I had about her. So I really want to thank Mary for her contributions. Interestingly, what we are seeing is that theme of those questions coming in, the obsessionality, the anxiety, the worry, the stress... And we've always said, you know, we might not see some of the pandemic effects until we start to reboard. And I think maybe we're starting to see those now. And, you know, although things are reopening and things are getting better and schools are back open, shops are open this week, there still is a great deal of demand for support uh, and intervention for young people. Uh, and many of us and my colleagues are absolutely overwhelmed and, and swamped with the demands for that. But... I suppose it is an indicator that there are still ripple effects and just because our shops are open and our vaccination rollout is there, the mental health pandemic is perhaps rumbling on. Um, but uh, we're glad to be able to answer some of those questions for people. We hope they've been helpful. And again, just to thank Dr. Mary O'Kane for joining me this week and to thank you for listening. And uh, don't forget, next week we have the Young Person's Voices episodes, the 18 to 25s, great episode, uh, a really insightful view into the life of that cohort of young people um, where we talk about the complications of romance, dating, college, missing out on milestones, all that sort of stuff. So it's a really great episode. I would encourage you all to listen to it. But until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.